Well, well, good morning, New Village Church. It's great to be with you, although I feel very awkward even in saying that as I'm not with you this morning uh, physically, and it's not morning for me, it's afternoon while I'm recording this. So, But I am grateful for the technology that allows me to be with you and the reading and teaching of God's Word this morning. So with that in mind, would you bow your heads and bow your hearts and let's prepare ourselves for God's Word. Heavenly Father, help us as we come before your word. Lord, help us to help us to bow our minds and bow our hearts, Lord. Help us to submit ourselves to your word. Lord, help us to be encouraged by your word this morning. Lord, we want to walk away from this room more like your son. And the only way we can do that is by intently looking at your word and not just looking at it, but knowing what it means and not just knowing what it means, but Lord, help us to apply it. All too often we know with our heads what your word says, but Lord, applying it is what we need to do. Lord, give us hope, give us grace, strengthen us to the task to be like your son. We need your help, Lord, in your name we pray, amen. Persecution's on the rise. Times are getting difficult. It's hard to be a Christian. Not many people think like you. And, and while you might think I'm talking about you in 2021 in Lake Grove, New York, I'm actually talking about the first century church. I want you to, for a little bit, remove yourself from where you are in 2021 and start thinking like a first century believer. Put yourself back there in their shoes. Um, whatever city you're in, in Asia Minor, uh, most likely you didn't have a Bible you wouldn't have had a Bible. The only Old Testament scrolls would have been in the synagogues. And, and at this point, uh, Jews and Gentile believers aren't really part of the synagogue anymore. They're part of a group called The Way. Uh, you may have had some of, you may have had Matthew's Gospel. Maybe that has circulated and copies have been made of that and gone around. So maybe your little group of believers has had a copy of the Gospel of Matthew. Maybe some of the other letters that have circulated, maybe Paul's letters to the Ephesians have made it to you. Maybe the, the letter to the Galatians, because that was a, an encyclical letter. It would go around. Maybe, maybe the encyclical letter, sorry, of Ephesians went around to you. But you wouldn't have the Word of God like, like you do now in 2021. So put yourself back there. You've trusted Christ with your life. Maybe a co-worker, maybe you're a farmer in the fields, and, and one of the co-farmers has shared the gospel with you, and you've come to the realization that you need to be saved, right? You've looked outside, and you've seen the birds flying, and you've seen the trees growing, and, and you've noticed how we sow plants and we sow crops, but, but it's God who makes them grow. And you realize as you look at the sun and the moon and the stars that God exists. And yet at the same time, your conscience condemns you. You realize that you're a sinner. You've done things that are wrong. And so there you are in the first century and you've given your life to Christ and you're part of a small group of believers. And yet now, somewhere around 64 AD, which is when the letter of First Peter was written, Nero has burned half of the city of Rome. And he's blamed it on the Christians. And there's persecution empire-wide starting to rise. And it's becoming very difficult to be a Christian. And it's different from 2021. You have no rights in the first century. You, you have no constitutional right to be a believer. And it's getting, it's getting hard. And, and back then, persecution can come in many different ways and shapes. It could be that you're in line at the, at the bread store. And the, the owner of the bread store knows that you're a Christian and says, wait, aren't you a follower of Jesus? Then it's going to be $8 for a loaf of bread. And you might say, but it was 50 cents for the guy in front of me. And he says, yeah, but for you, it's $8. Persecution comes in many forms, and it was on the rise. And, and you can imagine many churches, not just your church, but maybe many churches throughout the Roman Empire have written to the Apostle Peter, saying, Peter, what do we do? How do we handle persecution? It's getting hard. Is it and maybe you are tempted to just turn back. Maybe you're tempted to give up. And so the leader of your church rise, writes to the Apostle Peter, and, and maybe the other churches wrote to the Apostle Peter as well. And, and you can imagine the excitement that day while you're out working in the fields and someone from your local church, your local assembly of believers comes to you and says, come meet with us tonight. 
at so-and-so's house because a letter came and you're not going to believe who actually responded. Not a disciple of Peter, no, but Peter himself wrote a letter. So come at five o'clock and we're going to read it. So with that in mind, friends, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter was written, uh, we think it was written sometime shortly after the burning of Rome. Rome uh, was burned in 64 AD. Persecution started to rise. And this wouldn't be the last of the persecution. It wouldn't even be the worst of the persecutions coming from the Roman Empire. But this was the beginnings of what would turn to be centuries of blood shed by the martyrs. This is centuries of difficulty are about to, are about to happen. And they write Peter, and it makes sense right? You remember Peter, the night before Jesus was arrested, who was the one with the knife in his hand, willing to protect Jesus at all costs? Well, it was, it was Peter. So Peter, what do we do? do can, can we have a knife, Peter? Can we fight back? What is protocol for the Christian? How do we handle persecution? And I imagine the believer that's struggling is it's got even real. Life is getting difficult. Suffering is, getting, is, is, is becoming overwhelming. Did I do the right thing? Well, imagine you're there, you're sitting down at whoever's house it is where the house church meets, and you read these first few sentences. Whoever's doing the reading, maybe it's the, the local elder of your church, maybe it's the pastor, and he says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest. Can you imagine reading that? Can you imagine hearing that for the first time? Peter writes to your church and says, says, I'm Peter. I'm the one who, who walked on water and then, and then I sank. I'm the one who tended to speak out first and then kind of regret it a little bit later. I'm the one who tried to defend Jesus as if Jesus needed defending. I, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, your sojourners, your living scattered throughout all of the all of the all of the empire, but you know your home isn't really here. Your home is in heaven, and so you live here. You live in New York right now as a sojourner. It's not your permanent dwelling place. It's not your permanent home. And look what he says here. I think this would have been potentially one of the most precious things in this intro. You are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's not an accident. You didn't will yourself into salvation. We'll get into that in a moment. You were chosen. You're special. You have meaning. You have value. You're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And here's the purpose for it, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. I love Paul Peter's introduction I love what he's getting at. Listen, friend, uh, you now back in 2021, I don't know what kind of difficulties you're going through. I don't know what kinds of persecution you suffer. But here we're not talking about traffic on the freeway persecution. We're not talking about someone pulling into the parking spot right before you get it kind of persecution. Here we're talking about persecution for being a believer. Difficulty for simply being a believer. Peter acknowledges that suffering is on the rise. In fact, if you have your Bible open, look down at uh, chapter 1, verse 6. Even though for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Look on it, um, chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called to this or for this purpose since Christ also suffered. He also suffered. You suffer and Christ also suffered. Look at chapter 3 verse 14. Even though you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. Do you see the theme that's coming over and over and over again? It's suffering is coming. Look at chapter 4 verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you as for the testing 
as uh, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Look at chapter 5 at the very end. Let's see, it's um, verse 9, talking about Satan. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You're not alone in your suffering, but continue in verse 10. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, etc., etc. The theme of the letter that Peter is writing is suffering. Suffering is coming, so how do, we, how do we respond to it? How do we handle it? How do we deal with it? And I love what Peter does first. What Peter does in this letter is, is he gives us three motivating reasons. Well, I take it back. It's not the whole letter. What I love about the letter is that it's about suffering, but the under, undercurrent of the entire letter, the, the under theme of the letter is live well as a believer because the gospel is on the line. Live well as a believer because gospel is on the line. The way that you suffer glorifies and honors Christ, hopefully. If you suffer well, if you suffer well, like Christ suffered, it honors and glorifies him. So you've got suffering as the overarching theme of the letter. You've got the underlying current of that letter is while you're suffering, do it well so that others can be saved through your suffering. It, it's not that you can get out of suffering. Isn't that what we pray for usually, though? When we're going through hard times and, and we have a prayer meeting and we say, pray for me because of this difficulty. Pray that it be taken away. Instead, when we remember that the suffering is actually here to make us like Christ, and we'll get into that in a little bit, it's so that others can see it and others can be saved through it. That gives us a whole different reason for suffering, right? And it gives us a whole different reason for prayer. Lord, don't take it from me. You've granted this suffering upon me. You've allowed me to suffer this. So help me to suffer well. Give me the strength to stand firm and stand straight and stand tall in the midst of suffering. Allow me to honor and glorify your name in the midst of the suffering so that the dying world around me can see you through me. Well, we're going to be looking this morning really at verses 3 to 12. And Paul, or Paul, Peter starts off this letter in a way that I find odd, right? Because Peter's going to talk about suffering, but before he does, he does something actually much more important. And I say odd, I mean, in my human speaking, we would jump right to, okay, here's what you're going to do when suffering comes. Here's how you're going to handle suffering. Here's how, you need to th- here's how you need to act in the suffering. And Peter doesn't do that. He actually pulls their attention away from suffering for a moment. So we're going to look at verses 3 to 12, and what we're going to see are three motivating reasons to fix your gaze on hope in the midst of suffering. So verses 3 to 12, Peter is telling us, listen, Fix your gaze. Three motivating reasons to firmly fix your gaze on hope. And I have hope in capital. Capital hope. Right? The person of hope. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Three motivating reasons to fix your gaze firmly on hope in the midst of suffering. And so the first reason that we're going to look at in verses 3 to 5. The first reason is fix your eyes on the anchor of hope. Fix your eyes on the anchor of hope. Let me read verses 3 to 5, and then we'll dig into it. Blessed be the God and Father of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, which will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's first motivation moves the believer's attention from the momentary suffering that they're in, in the present, to a more eternal view. I've heard it said, and I can't remember who said it, and I'm probably even slaughtering the quote. I'm just remembering it right now on the fly, but, but someone said that there was a man in jail right? And you have two options. You're either going to look at the mud or you're going to look at stars. It's two completely different perspectives in the moment. And here's what Peter says. Stop looking at where you are and have an eternal perspective. Get a big picture view. Well, verse 3 opens up with a first century hymn, and it's not the only place. Um, Paul uses the same thing 
in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And if you've studied the book of Ephesians before, that's the beginning of what becomes 14 uh, through verse 14 in Greek is all one run-on sentence. It's as if Paul starts off saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he just he can't contain himself. He can't slow down. He gives reason after reason after reason why Jesus or why God the Father should be blessed. He also uses the same um, introduction in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Here, Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us an indicative statement. May he be blessed and you should be blessing him. And then he gives the reason why. And I absolutely love this reason. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be, to be born again. What's the reason? The reason why God is blessed is because, according to his great mercy. Listen, in Greek, it's emphatic. He puts a pronoun in front of it. It's just not according to mercy. And you're not blessing God because you... You've earned the mercy. It's not blessing God because of, of what you've decided, but you're blessing him because of his great mercy. That's the idea that's being appealed to. It's not mercy itself. You don't bless him because mercy exists. It's not blessing God because you hope that mercy exists. You're blessing God because the mercy belongs to him. It's, it's wedged in his character. It flows from his person. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. Listen, what an encouragement. Just this one verse should be for us. The mercy that he gives us is, or what he does for us, I'm sorry, is according to his mercy. It flows from his character. His love for us. What hope and strength that gives a believer in times of struggle. But, but look at what it is. It's the great mercy of God that has allowed you what? What has this great mercy allowed you to be? It has caused us to be born again. And I love this verse, the verb tense here. You, you can underline it in your Bible. His mercy caused us. To be born again. The action flows from him. You didn't cause yourself to be born again. It's not that you thought in your own strength to pull up your bootstraps and you're going to be born again. His mercy caused you to be born again. And that flows really from the introduction, right? When what we read in, was it verse two? According to the foreknowledge of, no, no, I'm sorry, the end of verse one. You who reside as aliens who were chosen. You were chosen, and according to his great mercy, he caused you to be born again. No, you're, you're, at, you're passive in this action, aren't you? God is the active member of what's going on here, and you're passive. You were caused to be born again. He caused you to have life from above, from the Father. That is a life that you could not give yourself. You were given the life as you were born again. You were given hope, and you were given faith, and you were caused to be born again into a living hope. Oh, I'm moving ahead of myself. Hold on. Look at what you've been born into. Look what he says. Who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again into or towards a living hope. You've been saved from sin. You've been saved from hopelessness. You've been saved from, from a path that leads to hell. And you were caused to be born again. And you were caused to be born again to a living hope. I love hope. Hope in the Bible is very different from our hope. Right? We use hope like, oh, I hope it rains. Well, I take that back. Here in Southern California, we hope it rains. Uh, we just had rain this last week. It was the first time, I think, the first time that it's really rained since, um, I don't know, since sometime this summer. Uh, we hope it rains a lot. But our hope is based on... 
on good feelings, right? This is based on our desire, right? I hope that my soccer team wins the game. It's not based on any actual knowledge of which team will win, but it's a hope. It's a, it's a longing. But hope in Scripture is very different. Hope and faith go hand in hand, and I love that. Hope and faith, are they're like married to each other. Faith looks back, doesn't it? Faith looks back at everything that Christ has done for us. It looks back at everything that God did even before we were born. How God saved people and those people came into our lives and and he orchestrated all of that. And he caused us to be born again. So faith looks back and says, look at how faithful God has ever been, right? And so faith faith is backwards looking and hope is the forward looking of faith. Hope says, if God has always been faithful, faithful, then I can guarantee you that God will be faithful. That's hope. And that's the hope that we have. And he says, his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, that's a strange way to describe hope. It's it's a hope that's alive. But why is your hope alive, right? That's the question. He anchors his argument actually in a specific time. He anchors his argument in the past when you were born again. Peter shifts the gaze of the suffering, persecuted church to the glorious truth that their hope is not something passing or something futile. He says it's a living hope. And it's anchored in the past. It's anchored when you were born again. It's anchored because Christ was raised from the dead. Because he's alive, your hope is alive, right? He is the living hope. We too have a never-dying, never-fading, never-diminishing hope. This hope is the key to Paul's letter, Peter's letter. This is Peter. This hope, this living hope that Christ is alive, that death could not hold him, but he rose. Think about it. What is the worst thing that can happen to the believer in persecution? It's death. Or I take it back. That's the worst thing. I'm sorry, not to the believer. The worst thing that can happen is death, and yet... Jesus conquered death. We have a living hope. I hope I explained that well. I got a little confused right in that last sentence. Let me say let me say it in a different way. Why is it that we can endure suffering and we can endure difficulty? Because we know that death isn't the end, right? We know that we have a living hope, and it's because Christ rose from the dead. Easter is one of my favorite times of the year because Christ rose you and I will rise again. We have a living hope. We're not hopeful because we're good people, or we're not hopeful because we have good people in government. We're not hopeful because the government is the kind of government that we picked. We're not hopeful in the things of this world. We're hopeful because of Christ, and Christ supersedes difficulty. Christ is over our difficulty. Our hope goes far beyond the temporal. It goes far beyond the now. They're hopeful. They're not hopeful, I'm sorry, because they have rights. They're not hopeful because they had a constitution that they could hold on to. They're hopeful because of Christ. In the end, the hope that is not, um, it's not even that, that the suffering will end. The hope is that God is sovereign over every aspect of our lives and that in the end, I will be with him for eternity. The hope for the first century believer is the same as for us. It's the risen Christ. We have a living hope, not because of ourselves, but because Christ lives in us. So we can have this living hope. Look, the very thing that was threatening the believers worldwide in the first century was persecution and death. And you can read about how they killed believers in the first century in Hebrews chapter 11. They talk about Old Testament men. They talk about New Testament men. But look at, look at 32, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness. So he's talking about men of the past, obtained promises, and shut the mouths of lions. There's Daniel. Quenched the power of fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to fight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. 
and others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. And here we're getting to some of the things that were happening during the Roman Empire. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were tempted and they were put to death with the sword. And they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. With the some of the some of the torturing of Christians was putting them in sheepskins, tying them up in sheepskins, and unleashing wild dogs on them. Right? What was happening in the first century to Christians, and this is what the believers of the first century church were worried about, was this this painful death coming. And Paul says, step back for a moment. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy caused us to be born again, it's a backwards looking thing, into a living hope, this hope that supersedes our experience now. But it moves forward. It takes their gaze off the fear and places it on Christ who has risen from the dead. Our hope is alive. But look at verse 4. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So positionally, believer, you've been born from above. God caused you to be born again, not based on anything you could ever do, but because he chose to give you life, to smile upon you and cause you to be born again into this hope that is forever alive. It's a continual living hope because it's in Christ and it's for something. Now he, he looks forward into the future, right? It's towards an inheritance. And we understand what an inheritance is. If someone dies and we're in their will and they've given us something, maybe it's an amount of money, maybe it's a house, maybe property, maybe whatever it is, right? We understand what an inheritance is, and that's what Peter is getting at here. You've been given a living hope to obtain an inheritance. And look at how he describes this inheritance. It is imperishable. It is undefiled, right? It's a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's how he says it at the end of verse 5. Peter anchors our hope both in the past event, right? Step back from your suffering. God caused you to be born again, and you're, you're living towards something, an inheritance. It's unfading. It's imperishable. It's, it's constantly there. It's unblemished. This is the best kind of inheritance. This is the perfect inheritance. If, if a relative leaves you their car, it's eventually going to fade, and it's going to rust, and it's, it's going to be junked. If someone leaves you a house, it's eventually going to lose value or eventually you're going to lose it, right? Something's going to happen. At some point, the, the things of this world, moth and rust can destroy. But you have a living hope in an imperishable, undefiled, and non-fading inheritance. Look what it says about the inheritance. Look at that word. In, uh, in the NASB, it says reserved in heaven for you. You have an inheritance right now, believer. Christian, you have an inheritance that's in the future that is reserved for you in heaven. Who's doing the reserving? Right, it's God that's doing the reserving. Right, no bank could reserve this kind of inheritance, and no bank could guarantee you this kind of inheritance, but God in heaven has your inheritance reserved for you. There's no better person to reserve your inheritance. There's no safer place for your inheritance to be, right? We're not talking about markets that go up and down. We're not talking about properties or houses that can be burned. We're talking about something that is unfading, imperishable, undefiled, and it's for you there. But that's not the end of it. It gets better. Like, Fort Knox doesn't have the kind of protection that heaven has reserving your inheritance. But, but look what verse 5 says. This is where it gets exciting. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You're protected by God. So yes, you're in the middle of suffering. Think about what this would have been like for the first century believers. Step back. 
look back. God saved me. He caused me to be born again. He's given me a living hope because he rose Christ from the dead and he reserves for me an inheritance in heaven that cannot be taken away. And not only that, he is protecting me. You who are protected by what? The power of God. He who can raise people from the dead. Look at Lazarus. Lazarus is my favorite miracle in the Bible. I think because we can relate to Lazarus. He was dead, and God calls him back to life, gives him the power to come back to life. You're in the middle of suffering, but salvation, look back. Salvation's from God. He caused you to be born again. You have a living hope that can't be taken away from you because Christ rose from the dead, and you have an inheritance in the future that's being reserved for you, and in the meantime, you are being protected. It may not feel like it when you're in the middle of suffering. It may not feel like it when it seems like the world is against you, but you have a heavenly protection. You have the power of God protecting you. This is better than SEAL Team 6, right? This is better than any kind of secret service protection in the world. You're being protected to get there. You cannot not get that inheritance. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Friend, fix your eyes. Fix your gaze on the anchor of hope. Because when you do, you have an eternal perspective, right? Hope is Christ. And because Christ rose from the dead, you have hope that you will rise from the dead. And because you have Christ, you have an inheritance in the future and you're being protected to get there. So the first motivating reason that Peter gives us to fix our gaze on him is the fact that Christ rose from the dead. Fix your eyes on hope. But now we move to the second point. Fix your eyes on the purpose of hope. So Christ saved you. And he brings you to the end. The power of God is bringing you to salvation that's going to be revealed at the end. But Peter now turns to the present. So now that we have an eternal perspective from the past to the future, now Peter does look at the present because we are suffering. There is hard times, right? We do go through difficult times and we are distressed by trials. So, but, but first, I love what he does. He doesn't say, Woe, woe is us because of the trials. He doesn't say, woe is you. Woe is me. Right? He says, fix your hope. Fix your eyes on hope, excuse me. Fix your eyes on hope. Get an eternal perspective. Then he brings the perspective down. Fix your eyes on the purpose of hope, verses 6 to 9. Let me read that for you. In this, talking about salvation, in this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. That the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith salvation for your souls. Now Peter shifts their gaze back to the present. Now that you have this eternal perspective, he says, let me tell you why hope is important. What's the purpose of that hope in your life? In this, you greatly rejoice. We see a shift from heaven, from the inheritance, from what you're going to get ultimately, eternity with God, salvation from, from hell, and forever with him, he shifts it to the difficulty that you're in right now, to the physical realm. Here we start shifting to the real reason and the theme of this letter, right? The suffering that we go through. Now, now we start getting from that mindset, how does that mindset help us right here and now? Our joy is not founded uh, in our circumstances, but the overarching hope of our salvation. Hope is over our situation. Hope goes beyond our difficulties. Hope runs deeper than our problems, and it extends wider than the persecution. Nothing can take away that hope. Notice the time indicator, right? He says, even though now for a little while, 
we do go through pain and suffering. And he says, even though now for a little while, it's, it has a limited scope. This isn't going to go on forever, right? And, and we have to recognize that for some people, the suffering would end when their life ended. Their suffering may go on for the rest of their life, right? Some of the people in the New Testament and, and the New Testament time period, right? The church, the first century church, many of the martyrs gave their lives for their hope. But what Peter's saying is there's a limited hope. It may end in this life, but when you compare our limited life to the eternal glory which comes, this is but a short while. It may be another 20 years of difficulty. It may be 30 years of difficulty, right? The, the apostle Paul was put on the island of Patmos and had to serve time there simply for his faith, and it lasted a while. But what, Paul, what Peter is saying is take courage. Trials are but for a short time. And time, isn't time funny? Time is, time is, time fluctuates. Time is fickle in the sense that if I hold my breath for three minutes, uh, you might say that's a long time, right? But when a baby is newborn, and maybe you see a baby that's eight months old, you might think, oh wow, that's a, that's a newborn baby. I remember when my wife and I were married, we were getting on a plane and we had been married for six months and I had been single for 24 years and then now when we got married six months later we're getting on a plane and someone said oh are you the newlywed couple and in my mind we were still newlyweds right apparently they had us mixed up with a different couple but in my mind the answer was of course I went 20 something years alone and it's only been six months with my bride time is interesting three minutes can feel like a long time eight months or six months can feel like no time at all Peter says, take courage. Trials are for a short time. Don't give in. Don't back down. Don't give up. Don't let go. Your eternal salvation is worth far more than these temporary sufferings. Don't give up on Christ because Christ won't give up on you. And you've got eternity that you can look forward to. It helps put perspective into the duration of your times. Paul writes something similar, right? In Romans 8.18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. In other words, the little short-term short sufferings that we go through, and friends, Paul went through, as you well know, so many more things than we do. We have, we have not come close to suffering like Paul did, right? He was whipped, he was stoned, he was left for dead, he was beaten, he was thrown in prison numerous times. And yet he's able to say, these sufferings, these are nothing. Because they're only they're just for a short amount of time. It's going to end when my life ends. And you know what? I've got forever after that. Even there, Paul was saying the pain and suffering that we go through are just passing. They're just, they're a mere mist, a mist that's a vapor. It's something that doesn't last a long time. But it begs the question, why have trials? Doesn't it? When I was younger in the faith, I used to think this is this is backwards than than what I would have expected. I would have thought that the Christian shouldn't suffer. And it should be the non-Christian that suffers so that he gives his life to Christ. And, and that was really immature thinking, right? If the truth is, if if the promise of Christ was no more suffering, then every pew in the New Village Church would be filled, absolutely filled, this coming Sunday with non-believers. Right? If, if I could promise people that they wouldn't have to suffer if they just turned their lives to Christ, then the church would be flooding with people. But that's not what Jesus promises, right? That's not the way it is. The reality is, it's when the believer, when the believer suffers and they go through a hard time, most non-believers would eject. Suffering is hard. I'm out of here. Forget it. I'm leaving the state, right? I'm leaving this place. This is too hard. But when the believer can withstand suffering and withstand it with joy, it's proof that they're saved. And he actually, he's going to get into that. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. I'm still in verse 6. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying. The testing proves your faith. The testing proves your faith. And he compares it to gold, 
right? Gold is the highest value thing, right? We look towards gold, a gold ring, a gold necklace, bars of gold. It's of high value. And he compares your faith to gold. And, and we know, we've, you've probably heard a million sermons on gold being heated in the fire and the impurities in the gold get burned out, the dross gets removed. And so the hotter the fire, the longer the fire, the more pure the gold, right? It reveals your faith. Everyone would follow Christ if it meant no suffering. But the very fact that suffering is, is part and parcel of the Christian's life, and yet they go through it with joy, not to say it's not difficult, but they're able to handle it because of the hope that we have in Christ. It proves all the more and makes the faith all the more precious like gold that's gone through a fire. Your faith is proven by the trials that you're able to endure. Faith is of a higher value than gold. Notice how he says it, gold which is perishable, right? But your salvation, ultimate salvation is in heaven. And he's just finished saying that's unfading. That's imperishable, but gold is perishable. When gold is heated, the dross is burned off. It's purified. It's of a higher value. When you go through testing and difficult times and the things that are not of Christ are burned off, they're removed from you, your faith is of higher value, right? Your faith, when purified, results in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but you believe in him, and you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Verse 8 introduces what true faith is really going to look like, right? Though you do not see him, or though you have not seen him. Notice that's in the past tense. Though you have not seen him, you love him. That's present tense, right? He's looking back to that moment of salvation when you were caused by God to be born again. You never saw him, but you trusted him with your sins and with your life. You, you couldn't actually see him. I love how Peter, no, Paul, excuse me, says in... 1 Corinthians 5, it's not 5, it's 1 Corinthians 4, 4.17. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. Verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen, everything around you, the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Peter's saying the same thing. Though you have not seen him and though you did not see him, you trusted him by faith to remove your sins and adopt you into the family of God. And because you had not seen him, or even though you did not see him, you present tense love him. In this present tense, I love that. It's habitual in Greek. Present tense is continuous. It's an ongoing action. It's it's durative. It goes on and on and on. So even though in the beginning when you gave your life to him. So funny story. Uh, my, my phone stopped recording. So closing this one point is that he says, as you obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, he's not saying He's not saying that you work your way to salvation or that you work hard to be saved. He's saying that as you go through the difficulties and as you go through the trials, you come out of it with this joy that's inexpressible, this joy that's full of glory, this joy that, that is weighty, this joy that cannot be described or cannot be understood by the non-believer. And that proves that you're saved. Because any non-believer, when they are in the midst of difficulty, when they're in the midst of suffering, if they call themselves a believer, but then they go through hard times, they may just simply eject and pull out and say, this isn't worth it. It's not worth the difficulty. It's not worth the suffering. But you, as a believer, as you go through it, and the, the things of this world are, are burned away as the, as, the, as the impurities are taken from the gold, right? You have the outcome of your faith. The outcome of that difficulty is salvation. It's proven you're saved. So we've seen uh, that we need to fix our eyes firmly and securely on the anchor of our hope. We need to fix our eyes on the purpose of our hope. And let me just wrap up quickly with the third point. Fix your eyes on the privilege of hope. 
Look what he says in verse 10 to 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking how seeking to know what the person or time in the Spirit of Christ within them, or the Spirit of Christ within them, was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. In these things which now have been announced to you, though uh, through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This last section just brings it up. This is an appendix to verses 3 to 9. This is a tag on explaining something precious about the salvation that you have. What he says here is that this salvation, the prophets of old wished they could see. The prophets of old, as they prophesied about the Messiah to come, they looked forward to something that would happen. They looked forward to to, to the Messiah that would come and turn all of the wrong things right, right? The Messiah who would be the snake crusher from Genesis 3.15, he who would come and redeem his people, they longed to know when that would happen. And they looked forward in faith. And you and I, in 2021, we look back in faith, don't we? They looked to the time of the cross for their salvation. We look back to the time of the cross for our salvation. And he says they prophesied, they made careful search and inquiry, they probably prayed, Lord, when will this happen? And it was revealed to them in verse 12 that they weren't serving themselves, but you. In these things which have now been announced, or which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, they in their prophets prophecies served you because you get to look back and you have all the more sure foundation for your faith that you've been caused to be born again through living hope because Christ couldn't remain on the cross. He, or he couldn't remain dead, excuse me. He was raised again, and you have an inheritance waiting for you in the future. Their prophecies were for you so that you could look back and know for sure. But I love this last phrase. Look at that. Things into which angels long to look. The angels were created beings, right? They were created just like you were created and I and Adam, right? Adam was created just like the angels. And yet the angels see that God himself steps down off the throne and God himself comes to rescue and to reconcile and to ransom these lost sinners. God has never stepped off the throne to reconcile lost angels. And the angels are slightly above people, right? Uh, the author of Hebrews says Christ stepped down and was made for a little while lower than the angels when he became human. So here you've got God, angels, us, and yet God comes down to us to save us back to him. And yet the angels long to understand that. They long to look into it. The verb here is that they, they stoop down. They, they wish they could understand, like they're, they're looking in at what's happening on earth, longing to understand this kind of salvation, this kind of love that a God has for you. Well, friends, how does this encourage you? How should it encourage you? I, in conclusion, I see, I see two ways that this plays out, and, and they're very general, right? But if you're a believer, if you've given your life to the Lord, if you've asked forgiveness for your sins, and you've agreed with God that you are a sinner and that you need saving, and if he has saved you and brought you into his family, right? If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, then what this text does for you is it calls you to look to Christ. Look to Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith, the author and complete, the author and completer of your faith, if we could say it like that, the, the one who is the beginning and the end. Look to him in the midst of your difficulty. It's not to say that your difficulty is going to be easy. It's not going to pass by quickly, necessarily. But looking to him, you fix your gaze up, don't you? Looking to him, you walk through the difficulty with, with a joy that's not based on the difficulty. It's a joy that overcomes the difficulty. It doesn't mean there won't be tears. It's not that kind of joy. Like some tragedy happens. It doesn't mean you're just going to laugh at it. But you're going to have this inner sense of joy that's inexpressible. It's, 
got weighty glory to it as the difficulties of, of the trial burn away the impurities of your life. And you, the result is you act more like Christ. Look to him. Look to the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He was able to continue through the pain and the suffering of the whipping and the cross and even the being separated from God because of your sin. So look to him so that you can have joy to look through your difficult time. And friend, if you're uh, here today and you're not a believer, you haven't given your life to the Lord, you haven't repented of your sins, you haven't said, Lord, save me, forgive me, this text to you says something completely different because you don't have a living hope. You don't have an imperishable salvation that's waiting for you and you're not being protected to get there. Your hope is in temporal things. Your hope is in the good job that you have or the hope that you'll get a job, which you may or may not get. Your hope is in, your hope is in things of this world. Your hope is in the government, which, which can change every four years and flip-flop. Your hope is in something temporary. So this text for you, non-believer, says repent. Repent so that you can have hope. Listen, you know that God is real and you know that you're a sinner. You don't need me to explain that. You look outside and you see that, that there must be a God. Birds fly and, and clouds come rolling in and trees grow. The creation groans and sings a song that points to God. His thumbprint is all over creation. And yet at the same time, you know in your heart and in your conscience that, that you're a sinner and you need to be saved. So this text to you is really a warning call, repent. It begs you to repent, to ask forgiveness for your sins. And, and today is a great day for that. If you're here listening and you're not a believer, look to someone who brought you. Look to someone who is here at the church and ask them that they would lead you in a better understanding of this. Today is a great day for salvation. This text to you says, put your hope in the risen Lord, not in yourself. Without him, you don't have hope through suffering and difficulty. You just have suffering and difficulty. Ask forgiveness and be saved from death, be saved from wrath, and be saved to a life in Christ. Friends, would you bow and pray with me? Heavenly Father, help us to apply this text. Lord, help us in our midst of suffering and in our moments of difficulty and, and in our moments of persecution to first of all look back and recognize that salvation came from you, to recognize that, that the, the living hope that we have is because Christ rose from the dead, not because of anything we've done, and we have a salvation in the future that's not based on anything we've done. It's from you, it's through you, it's by you, and it's for you. Lord, help us to be anchored in that as we go through difficulty. And Lord, I pray for anyone here listening who is not a believer. Lord, I pray that they would not leave today without asking how to be saved. Lord, I pray that they would walk out here today as new creatures, as saved people. Lord, part of your family as children of God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this text. Thank you for Peter who wrote this 30 years after denying you. 30 years after saying he didn't even know you, here he's shepherding, shepherding people through difficulty saying, but it is Christ who saves us through that. Thank you for Peter. Thank you for maturing him. And Lord, we pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would mature us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.